0: Now, about um, four or 500 years before the events of this passage, um, someone decided, and the, and the someone may have been a person called Aeschylus, if Aristotle is to be believed, uh, but he decided that when you're telling a story, a good thing to do would be not just to have uh, one storyteller, uh, but to have uh, two storytellers. Uh, one of the storytellers could play one part, and the other storyteller could play another part, so they could kind of reenact the drama of what happened. And indeed, uh, that is how uh, drama was born. Um, and this is a, a really important innovation in literature because um, it doesn't mean that the story is about uh, more people. Right, the, the the second character, who is not the protagonist, but is technically called the deuteragonist is introduced to, 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 to tell us things about the hero, to tell us things about the protagonist. So, to give some examples, to show us what the protagonist is not, right? So, that's what we mean when we say that somebody's a foil to somebody else. It's like a contrast. Or a second thing that they could do is that they could kind of embody um, a group of people and their relationship towards the hero. Or a third and and perhaps easier thing that they could do is just suggest to us how we might respond to the hero. Uh, So I I think a good example is in uh, in Mary Poppins, um, the character of Bert is quite important because Mary Poppins is um, a witch who floats down from heaven to um, invade uh, uh, children's homes. It's quite weird, actually. Uh, So the character of Bert, who basically tells us who this heavenly figure is, is, is helpful because it helps to kind of normalise her and to reassure the audience that we're dealing with somebody who's here on a good mission. Now here we have an extended passage about a secondary character, John the Baptist, and we know already, it's clear, that John the Baptist is not the hero of this story. If you've been, a, been with us for sermons over the last few weeks, it's obvious who the hero of the story is. But you'll also know that we've had uh, lots of passages about this secondary character, John the Baptist. The author of the Gospel is interested in him. He's come up three times in his own little passages uh, in chapter one. And now, now we have after the very famous passage with Nicodemus, which is very beautiful, very memorable, very profound, he's back again. John the Baptist is back again. Why? Well, we're going to see together that he's going to make a point about what Jesus is not. He's going to embody and represent a group of people and how they relate to Jesus. And he's going to suggest to us how we can respond to Jesus as well. So let's look at that together. And as I say, the the, the background, the run-up to this is important. So we're going to look at the passage, but first... Let's do a review of what's happened so far. So, first important thing in the gospel that I want us to recap we've had the gathering of the disciples. Okay, so Jesus has gathered disciples from, first of all, from among John's disciples. So, that's interesting. Already, John the Baptist is entering a period of relative decline, as it were. Um, And Jesus is also gathering disciples from elsewhere. That too, I think, illustrates uh, something of the relative power and importance between them because Jesus' scope, as it were, is greater. He's gathering disciples from a wider range of places, both among John's disciples but also elsewhere. Then we have this first miracle of Jesus uh, at at the wedding at Cana, the turning of water into wine. And John the Baptist doesn't appear at all during that episode. So very, very memorable, a story that's told a lot to children. It was told to me when I was a child in the children's Bibles. John the Baptist absent. The, the sort of the numinous element then kind of builds. Jesus clears the temple courts. He utters the words, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So potentially quite offensive, quite affronting uh, language. The author tells us that Jesus is talking about his own body. Again, very mysterious. And then we have this famous passage with Nicodemus. Jesus says many uh, very famous things during that exchange. He says, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. He then compares himself to the snake that Moses lifts up in the wilderness. And then John explains, in the words that we had as the words of assurance earlier, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, very memorable, highly resonant, cosmic claims being made. And then we arrive at the beginning of our passage and we come crashing back to earth. And what's happening? Verses 22 and 23. Jesus and John are baptizing. Now, it's probably not surprising that John the Baptist is baptizing because the clues in his name. Um, he's called to a ministry of baptism. Maybe a little bit more surprising that Jesus is also baptizing, but as I've already mentioned, he says to Nicodemus that one must be born of water and of the Spirit. So he's already promised um, that baptism is going to be important, and he's just acting that out. Perhaps the more surprising point, though, is that they're both baptizing at the same time. And and the reason that that's surprising is both internal to the narrative and external to it. So internally, John has already been very clear to point away from himself and towards Jesus. So he said in the earlier passages where we've met him, what I'm here to tell you is to make make, uh, straight a path for the Lord. So it's not about me, it's about the one who comes after me. So the question that raises is, well, if he's making way for somebody else, why is he still active, given that the somebody else has now arrived? And then external to the narrative, we have the point that I've already made, that, uh, that John the Evangelist, i.e. the author of the book, has been telling us very clearly that the person of cosmic significance here is Jesus, and it's not John the Baptist. So, So as readers, I think we want to ask the question, why are we still still talking about John? Well, verse 25, some kind of argument um, arises over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now, we're not told what the argument is about, but I suspect that given the context, it may be something about the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. and So if that's right, then effectively what's going on is that the disciples are just asking the same question that I asked, i.e. why are John and Jesus now both baptising at the same time, and what is the difference? Verse 26, they come over to John and they say to him, they say to him, Rabbi, teacher, John, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, Jordan so Jesus, Uh, the one you testified about, so they're acknowledging the fact that John has been preaching about, not himself, but about Jesus, so they've got that point. Look, he is baptising, and everyone is going to him. Okay, so I think we, broadly speaking, I think that confirms that the debate is about the difference between Jesus' baptism and, and John's baptism. But more importantly and interestingly, I think, the question contains a kind of veiled criticism or barb against, against John, because they say to him, everybody is going to Jesus, right? So they're saying to John, look, a competitor has opened a, a shop on the other side of the road, and everybody's going there. Now, how does John respond to that? Verses 27 and 28, he effectively says, what a person uh, receives is a gift from God, and it's out of that person's control. So he, he is saying he can't be the Messiah because that is not the role that is appointed for him. Instead, he says he was sent ahead of the Messiah, so he again plays this role of pointing away from himself and towards Jesus. So an extreme, extremely humble response. And just before we kind of move on from that, I do want to pause for a moment to reflect on how attractive that is. Because imagine that somebody points out to us that everybody is going to church down the road and and not here. Would we say in that scenario that we're we're really glad for them, like we're really happy that they have found a great church where... They feel comfortable and they can call home and they're getting real benefits and they're serving. Would would that be our first response? Or if somebody said to you, um, oh, you know, everybody's going for advice to your best friend, but not to you. Again, would you just be pleased that they were talking to somebody trustworthy and wise? I can, I can tell you now that I wouldn't feel like that immediately. I mean, even if I don't feel a level of jealousy, which I probably would, but at minimum, I would feel a level of self-consciousness. What's wrong with me? John displays none of that. So this is some serious humility from John, I think, right? He's delighted that people are moving away from him and towards Jesus. I think that's very attractive, very unusual. Okay, so that brings us now into verses 29 and 30, which I think are the emotional high point of the passage. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. So just a quick clarification. The verse here says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. I just want to clarify that that doesn't connote some kind of ownership or possession. I, um, I looked at the Greek and it says something like the person who has the fiancé is the fiancé. Uh, so you can see how the English translator had to do a bit of work to make that sound natural in English but it doesn't connote any kind of uh, possession or or ownership. The marriage metaphor is actually um, very beautiful and contains a lot in it. So just to open up a few points, marriage speaks of great intimacy, of love, of tenderness, closeness. Marriage also speaks of solemnity and covenant and commitment. And the specific aspect of marriage that's being contemplated here is the moment immediately before it. So it's a moment of anticipation, excitement. And this is not an image that just comes up here. Marriage between Christ and the church is the great climactic moment in Revelation chapter 21. And so both in this passage and in Revelation this image speaks of Christ's love for the world, already a theme in what he said to Nicodemus. It speaks of a solemn covenant between God and man. It speaks of a feeling of anticipation, of excitement about what is to come, a feeling that we can have if we believe that Christ will return. But the focus, interestingly, here is not on Christ as the bridegroom, or on the wife, but on a member of the groom's party, right? So it's somebody who isn't the focus of the day, it's not all about him. How does he feel? He feels delighted, he feels joy. He feels the kind of joy that you can feel from the sidelines. That's a bit, a bit strange, because I think that might sound a little bit kind of second-rate when you first approach it. But I think we all know that joy. We all know the joy of being the secondary character, right? Because if you think about how you feel when you're a mere observer, but you're on the right team, so in, in a sporting context, that, 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 that arises. If you're um, watching a tennis match and the player that you like is winning some points, that's a great feeling and you're not doing any of the hard work. Or, you know, put it inside uh, John's metaphor more squarely, inside um, a wedding. Those of you who have been married may have experienced the fact that your wedding day can be obviously brilliant, but also have some stressful aspects to it. There's a lot of logistics. Uh, it's, there are a lot of feelings, and it's a time of great spiritual significance. So, you know, there's a lot going on. But if you're the, the close friend, right, so you've turned up at the wedding and you just love both of the people who are getting married, you love the bridegroom, you love the bride. you think this is a great thing that's happening, it's a great match, you're just so happy for them, but you actually don't have to do very much. You turn up with humility, you celebrate, you love them, you chat to them for you know, five minutes or whatever it is. That's actually great fun, and, it can, and it, can, it can be a very joyful experience. Not for you, but for them. John is saying that he has that kind of joy. And he says that it's complete. It's full up. So if it's full up, if it's complete, there's a sense that he's saying that his, his mission is over. And indeed he confirms that in the, uh, in the next verse, in verse 30. Uh, he must become greater, I must become less. So, Sean is saying in a sense, mission accomplished, I will decline. Um, Jesus must become greater. Now we'll come back to this because I think this is very important. But before we do I just want to finish moving through the passage in verses 31 um, to 36. Now, this is probably, I think, exposition from the author, from John John the Evangelist. It's difficult to know exactly where the quotation ends. So you see, after I must become less, there's a, a closed quotation mark. Some editors think that 31 to 36 are also part of the speech. But it doesn't really matter, right, because either way, um, this, is, this is explanation. Explanation by, given, being given by John the Baptist about his, own, about his own claims, or explanation being given by John the author about John the Baptist's claims. So either way, we're meant to interpret this as explanatory. So verse 31, John draws a distinction between an earthly messenger and a, and a divine one. So an, an earthly messenger can only ever speak as one from the earth, i.e. without perfect knowledge, without perfect perspective. A divine messenger, on the other hand, is above all, so so sees all. Now verses 33 and 34, that divine messenger is trustworthy because he speaks the words of God. And so if, if God is truthful, then the messenger who speaks his words must be truthful as well. Verse 35, there's more to it. This divine messenger isn't just a messenger. Rather, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. So this is a person who comes not just to communicate, but a person who comes in power. Not just a messenger, but a Lord. And what kind of power does he come with? Well, verse 36 he holds the keys to eternal life and death. Now, there's, uh, there's an awful lot in there, and it's very rich, um, but I've taken it quite rapidly because uh, there's a lot of discussion of similar topics in the Nicodemus passage that we explored uh, last week, and also because I do, as I said earlier, want to come back to John the Baptist and why we have this passage at all, what John the Baptist is doing for us. Clearly, the most accessible message and lesson of the passage is listen to Christ. Look to him, not to John the Baptist, not to his prophets, disciples, priests. Look to Jesus. That's what John the Baptist says to his disciples. Uh, And that's what he would say to us. But there's more. Recall what I said earlier about the role of the supporting character, John the Baptist, as the deuteragonist, as the, um, as, the as the as the Bert to the Mary Poppins, right? John the Baptist shows us what the protagonist is not, embodies some other force that relates to Jesus, and shows us how somebody might feel or respond to Jesus and invites us to do the same. So specifically. John the Baptist shows us that Jesus is not what? He is not the earthly messenger. He is not John the Baptist. He is not a prophet. No, he is the divine messenger who who sees above all. He's the teacher, but he's also the Lord. And he's the one who holds the keys to life and death. So no mere messenger, no mere teacher. You know what those are like. John the Baptist is one of them. He says Jesus is something else. Then second, what does John the Baptist embody and represent? He embodies and represents the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, we've discussed this in the past when we've discussed the comparison between John the Baptist and Elijah. So in the person of John, the Old Testament effectively hands over to the New The Old Testament is a story uh, of waiting. So, like the friend waiting for the bridegroom, you remember that aspect of the metaphor that the bridegroom, um, the friend of the bridegroom waits and listens for the bridegroom's voice. The overarching story of much of the Old Testament is like that that the people wait for God to save them, to send a Messiah, to to restore uh, the unity between God and man that existed in the Garden of Eden and was broken. The joy of the arrival of that Messiah is now complete, John's words. And then third, what's the, what's the way of responding to Jesus that, that, that John invites us to participate in? Well, John the Baptist looks at Jesus with excitement and anticipation. We've got that from the, from the wedding metaphor, but also with profound humility. We saw that as well earlier. So he encourages us to do the same, to be joyful to participants, to delight in this In this great arrival and in this coming wedding, but also to disown the fallacy that the main character in this is any of us. Now, the eagle eyed among you may have noticed that as I was going through verses 31 to 36, I missed um, verse 32. Now, verse 32 is talking about the one who comes from heaven. And it says, He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts uh, his testimony. Now this is, this is, this is a little um, unsettling um, because it's quite one-sided. Um, no one accepts the testimony. Now I should say that you know, there, are always, there are always two sides to the to the Christian message. Um, because it is a message of salvation and great comfort, and, that, and, and it is that primarily. But it, it's premised on the, on the more unsettling notion that without salvation, the world is lost. And incidentally, I think that's why um, people are wrong when they say that um, religion generally, or Christianity specifically, constitutes a way of dealing with anxiety around death. It doesn't deal with anxiety around death because it doesn't just say that everything is going to be okay. It doesn't say that. In a way, it actually raises the stakes because it says that what we do on Earth really matters in some kind of metaphysical, cosmic, eternal way. So there are two sides um, to the Christian message. It is, as I say, primarily it is good news. Christianity is the gospel. It is the good news. The good news is good because there is danger. But as I say, this verse actually feels quite, quite, quite lopsided. It goes the other way because it says uh, that the divine messenger has testified to what he's seen and heard, so presumably telling us some good news, but actually nobody accepts. testimony. Now I don't think that can literally mean no one, because the very next verse talks about those who do accept it. But there is a real sense here that there is some number of people who who will see and hear the divine, uh, but will reject it. So a sobering thought. What should we do in the face of that? John's approach is this, John the Baptist's approach is this. He must become greater, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. Those are powerful words that I think um, we can make true in many aspects of our lives. It's true in the world. We as Christians must think less of ourselves and more of Christ. We must be less keen to promote the virtues of Christians or to excuse Christian leaders for their indiscretions and more keen to promote the virtues of Christ himself. And that will change what we say when uh, Christians in public life are found wanting. We should not rush to excuse them. Of course we should defend people who ought to be defended. But we should love justice because God loves justice. We must spend less time trying to make sure that people listen to us and more time trying to make sure that people listen to what God has to say to them. Now that will change the stance we take in apologetics and evangelism. It shouldn't matter if we are impressive in what we say. It should matter if we invite people to listen to what God has to say to them. This is also true in our church specifically. We must place, as Christians, less importance on whether our church flourishes and more importance on whether Christ is glorified. And that will change our attitude to things like church growth. We must preach the gospel truthfully and faithfully and humbly and lovingly. And Christ will be greater. But the result of that is that we may be smaller. In importance or prestige or wealth or numbers. And that's okay. And this is also true in our personal lives. So the voice in me that speaks for me should become quieter and quieter as the years go by. And the voice that speaks for the true, the good and the beautiful, that is the voice of the Holy Spirit, should become stronger and stronger. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there's no place for the individual. On the contrary, Christians should be profoundly and specially committed to the dignity of every human being. But it does mean that we should, when thinking about ourselves as opposed to others, put the self to death. For just as Christ himself gives eternal life by willingly going to death and opening the way to heaven, we too must submit ourselves in all humility to becoming less than we are. And then, as Christ rises from the dead in the miraculous reversal that characterizes the entirety of the Christian message, we too will find that in becoming less, we find true life. He must become greater, and I must become less. Let's pray that together now. Heavenly Father, we pray... that Christ would become greater and that we would become less. Give us humility. Cause us to have less and less thought for ourselves. And cause Christ to become greater as a result. And through this would you be glorified. Amen.